Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Welcome back, party people. Episode 16, Triple Threat Theater. I am Joe Daxberger. And I am Ryan Miller. Hey, Millsy. Sup, Dax? Back in the saddle again. <laughs> yes. Yes, we are. Episode 16. I'm trying to think of some uh, special event that goes with 16, but I've got nothing. Sweet 16. Oh, jeez. Good thing I keep you around. <laughs> I knew there was a reason yeah. I was here. I'm like, er, what goes with 16? <laughs> Duh. 16 oh. candles. Millsy. Oh. Gonna start uh, driving the people wild with that voice. <laughs> Better stop now while I'm ahead, then. Yeah, really. Well, I'll sing back up. <laughs> do up, do up, <laughs> do up, do. <clears throat> All this singing, it's perfect for this episode. <laughs> no, it's really not. Musicals. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> of course, that's what making of means. <laughs> uh, Millsy. Mm-hmm. Did you have any excitement for this episode? Um, I, well, yes, because a couple of these movies I hadn't seen before and I had been meaning to for a while. Mm. One of them sits in my uh, wall of shame on ah. my Letterboxd account, which yes, is probably course. where I came up with the idea for this episode because I was like, oh, what else can we watch along with that one? Hmm. Admittedly, while watching them, I was enjoying myself and thinking, hmm, these being not your typical movie might be a little more difficult to find a uh, constructive conversation about. But, you know, I'm excited to uh, see how we do. (laughs) Well, in that case, let's get after it. This episode, Making Of, it's all about them documentaries, baby. Mm, but a specific kind of documentary. A specific kind of movies about movies. Mm-hmm. As you said, this was uh, an idea of yours for this episode. We've got 1991's Hearts of Darkness. A filmmaker's apocalypse. The story of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Then you have 1996's Full Tilt Boogie. Which is uh, the behind the scenes of Robert Rodriguez's Dust Till Dawn. Mm-hmm. And then we've got 2003's Overnight, the real life Tinseltown parable about <laughs> Troy Duffy, director of Boondock Saints. <laughs> yeah. So, as I mentioned, one of these is on my uh, wall of shame, and that was Hearts of Darkness, I've wanted to watch for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where I had heard about it a lot over the years, and I guess I got the wrong impression about it from the things that I heard. I mean, people make it sound like uh, it 
is just like utter chaos constantly, which I guess there's a degree of that, but mm-hmm. I don't know. For all intents and purposes, Francis Ford Coppola in the documentary, even if he didn't seem to be in control of everything, he seemed to be just kind of going with the flow for the most part. <laughs> right. I think this, that one in particular, like even like pre-internet days up until now, if you ever hear about like some crazy movie production, someone will always say Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Probably part, in fact, because there is a pretty in-depth documentary about it. Yeah. Stuff like this really makes you wonder. You watch something. So I had seen Overnight before, and I'd Mm -hmm. wanted to watch Full Tilt Boogie for a while, along with Hearts of Darkness. And you see something like uh, Hearts of Darkness, which was about a somewhat troubled shoot, a film shoot. And then you see Overnight, which is just a whole bag that we're going to have to unpack when we talk about that one. Yes. And it makes you wonder, like, how often is a film set just a fucking madhouse? Because, mm. you know, there's a lot of good featurettes and making of documentaries and things out there. I guess the specification that I tried to use when I was uh, picking the other movies to go along with Hearts of Darkness is that None of these documentaries were just like made for a DVD release. Right. Um, these were standalone. all individual, yeah, films that were standalone, released separately from the movies that they're about, even if they are like included. Like, I think the whatever the current release of Apocalypse Now is has a. Uh, yes. Hearts of Darkness on it. And there is at least a version of um, From Dusk Till Dawn that has Full Tilt Boogie on it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so these were, like, all standalones, because otherwise, like, there's some, you know, some of my favorite special features of all time are, like, the Lord of the Rings extended edition. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where the, the special features documentaries are, like, four times as long as the movies. Or, sure. Uh, another I mean, yeah. great one is uh, the documentary for each film on the Alien Legacy box set is great stuff. Oh, I I own that box set, but I don't think I've ever watched those. Man, Someday when you like you're sick and you're off from work or something, mm. just sit down with some chicken soup and pop those on. There's like a two hour documentary for each movie, and they're great. Millsy, that sounds glorious. <laughs> Since I've owned that box set, I've definitely watched the making of Alien more times than I've watched Alien <laughs> because nice. I just following Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Chassette through that whole thing. And then at the end mm-hmm. of the documentary, Dan O'Bannon, who is unfortunately deceased now, he's like telling the story about the opening day and him like driving by the, is it man's Chinese theater out in like, oh, uh, yeah. out in LA and um, like just breaking down in tears when he saw the lines around the block and he gets choked up, like telling the story in the interview. And I just fucking oh. love it. Man, I got to see that. I mean, we can say it right now. I love behind the scenes stuff. I think every episode of this show so far, you have talked about yeah. how you would like to be a fly on a wall I know. I of like a, I mean, th- a movie studio. So that doesn't is, surprise me yeah. in the least. This is no news to anyone. Yes, I say that <laughs> on like every episode. Because I want, I mean, it's not as prevalent now, but there's been plenty of times back in like the the real nitty gritty like DVD buying days where it'd be like, like looking for an older movie and I'd be like Newberry Comics or something and mm-hmm. I'd be, I'd be digging through the different, uh, ones for sale of the same movie just to find the one that's got the best special features. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I'm still like looking up special features and seeing like how long 
you know, a behind the scenes is or, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I, I get like plenty of movies digitally now. Mm-hmm. Most of them still have that kind of stuff, but it's not as prevalent as I would like to have like a real in-depth behind the scenes. Um, I love my favorites. I, I can't say my single favorite, but two of my favorites are the, the two Guillermo del Toro Hellboy movies. Mm. Yeah, I you told me about the one on Hellboy yeah. and I've never watched it, but oh, I did. Man. One night you and I were like chatting online mm-hmm. and you told me about it and I like went right to Amazon and bought the Blu-ray for the first Hellboy because <laughs> I had it on DVD but mm-hmm. just so I could watch that special feature and I still haven't. <laughs> oh man, you got I know you've got feelings about those movies, but man, you got to watch the behind the scenes cuz it goes right from the beginning. They show all like the creature work and the Yeah. making the maquettes and stuff. It's just it's some of the best. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Like any kind of mm-hmm. special feature like that, or I think that the shining example is the Lord of the Rings ones that go like super in depth with every stage of production. I yeah. love all that. I think I've only watched the Fellowship of the Ring one of that. Oh man, you need to dive into the rest. I mean, Even like the Hobbit movies, um, you know, not as good as Lord of the Rings. But um, the the special features for those are even longer than the ones oh, really? for Lord of the Rings. Because, yeah, the Lord of the Rings ones, I think, are like four to six hours each. And the ones for the Hobbit movies are like eight hours long per movie. Mm-hmm. And they just dive into it. And I, I love it. I can watch that stuff all day. Yeah, honestly, I could too. It's funny to say that, but then it burns my ass, man. If you watch an, watching one of those and it's just like lousy on set interviews. Yep. Or like it's just such like surface level feels like just like marketing junk. Jesse and I talk about that all the time on Sidetracked. Like, um, you know, as big and popular as the Avengers movies oh, and the MCU yes. stuff is, it just sucks so bad that like any special feature you're going to find on one of those uh, Blu-rays is, is typically like six minutes long and four mm-hmm. of those minutes are just footage from the movie that you bought already and then the other two minutes is just like everybody sucking each other's dick and saying like oh Mm -hmm. yeah scarlett johansson's wonderful i love working with her she's great she's awesome like okay yeah i get it but tell me something anything about the production of the film right yeah the much as i love the movies those marvel ones are worthless i don't even watch them yeah like someday like 15 20 years from now they're they've got to do like some kind of like crazy special edition collector's edition box sets or something where they like go into detail on how they achieve like bucky's metal arm and stuff and that's the world i want to live in yeah it'd be nice to think they're like sitting on that stuff for a later date i mean these days you know especially a big studio movie like that they're shooting all kinds of behind the scenes stuff um i think it's more rare for something from like the um, the from Dust Till Dawn era, for example, or even um, like Apocalypse Now, it was Francis Ford Coppola's decision, and I thought it was funny because his wife filmed all of the like on set stuff, all mm-hmm. the, all that footage for that documentary, and uh, she even says right at the beginning that he gave her the task of filming behind the scenes content, and she figures it was probably just to keep her busy because they were going to be stuck in uh, <laughs> right. in the Philippines for right. like a year filming the movie, and he didn't want her uh-huh. to be bored. <laughs> Right. But um but yeah, just like the, the the fact that there's so much footage from a movie like that I feel like is mm-hmm. uncommon for that time period. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, to this day, to what you were saying, you know, if I'm gonna buy a Blu-ray, uh, which I still do frequently, um I will 
definitely check out the special features. And there have been times where, like, The Monster Squad is a movie that I I don't own a copy of it, and I would really like to. It's a movie that, like, was kind of hard to get your hands on for a while. Oh, God. And yeah. there's all these boutique uh, movie distributors now that are put like Scream Factory and Severin Films and Arrow Video, and there's a ton of them now. And they're releasing a lot of cool, like, old genre films and things. And some of them, like Scream Factory, will really go out of their way to get good, like, behind-the-scenes footage and deleted scenes and, like, new interviews and commentaries and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But the company that got the rights to release uh, The Monster Squad is called Olive Films. I'm not super familiar with them, but they didn't put a goddamn thing on the Blu-ray. And since it's, like, a smaller distributor... And they have to pay the costs of them getting the distribution rights from whatever studio owns that film. You mm-hmm. know, it's a boutique distributor, so you're paying like $25 for that Blu-ray. Right. So it's like, do I want to pay $25 just to own Monster Squad, which should be the main attraction? And even if Monster Squad had like, you know, two hours of documentaries on the disc, what are the chances I'm going to go home and, and watch them right away? Like, True. but. Even though I don't watch as many special features as I'd like to or I should, that still definitely makes an impact on me when I'm buying home video. Is that a recent release for uh, Monster Squad? Um, last couple that... of years, I think. Not like Cause... just came out last week or anything. Because I'm not. Because I have it. Because I bought it as soon as it ever came out on Blu-ray. Like that was kind of one of those ones I was definitely waiting for. Oh, really? Yeah. How long ago would that but... have been? I feel like it's more than a few years ago. I'd have to look. Mm. Yeah, it might have been like a catalog title years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. Like when, you know, whatever studio was like, oh, let's just start putting all of our films on Blu-ray. Yeah, I think it must have been that one. um, Yeah, the only copy I've been able to find in a brick-and-mortar store lately has been the Olive Films version, and it's Mm. just kind of sad. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. Well, with that, do you think we should get into it? Probably. (laughs) At this point. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about Blu-ray buying I mean, all yeah. day. It's one we of my could. favorite I things. Mean, special but... features. I mean, we're going to have some bonus episode where we just talk about special features of movies mm. for an hour and a half. I'm now thinking about a new supplemental podcast that we can Ooh. do for every episode where we watch special features oh, revolving boy. around the films we discuss. <laughs> we, Quick, we, let's, we, let's, get, we, let's move on before I think about we, this too hard. We can only blame ourselves. <laughs> Shall we get into Hearts of Darkness? Yes. I remember complaining to Francis one day about my confusion about all that was going down, and I said to him, I don't know who this guy is. Who is this Willard? And Francis just looked me square in the eye, and he said, he's you. Whoever you are, whatever we're filming at the time, you are that character. Francis said he had a dream a few nights ago about being on the set of the Saigon Hotel Room with Marty and a Green Beret advisor. In the dream, the Green Beret was telling Francis that what he was doing with Marty was wrong. It would never be like that. The Green Beret said those guys were vain. The guy would go to the mirror and admire his beautiful hair and beautiful mouth. In Francis's dream, he had Marty go to the mirror and look at himself, admire his mouth, and when he turned around, Francis could see that Marty had suddenly turned into Willard. Uh, 1991, as you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie Apocalypse Now came out in 79. It took like 
from according to the documentary, it took like two and a half years to come out after they finally finished filming. So it was filmed in like seventy seven ish time frame, right? And like I already said, uh, Coppola's wife Eleanor filmed all of the like massive amounts of footage, tons, um, like on set and on location. It was pretty much all on location in the Philippines um, over the course of more than two hundred days. <laughs> Of filming. Where it was where it was supposed to be what a sixty day shoot or something? Was it really? I I must have missed that I, if I, that's what they I said. I know it certainly wasn't two hundred. I only think it was a hundred. Yeah, they uh, well, they detail that um, there was like a tsunami that came mm-hmm. in and it wrecked a bunch of sets that they had built. Yeah. So they sent everybody home and took two months off to fix that stuff and then went back yep. to film again. And then there was a period late on in the uh, the shooting when Martin Sheen, out of the blue, has a heart attack while filming. Yeah, yeah, thirty six year old Martin Sheen, yeah, young, who was was actually the second actor, which was news to me that uh, Harvey Keitel was originally yeah the lead. Well, here's here's a question I I meant to ask right when we started. Um, did you rewatch any of the films that were the focus of these documentaries for this? Show? I watched a little bit of one of them. Okay. Uh, um, not I watched like probably the first maybe forty minutes of um Boondock Saints. Okay. Um <laughs> I didn't rewatch any of them. Uh I've only seen Apocalypse Now one time and it was many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh it's been a while since I've watched Boondock Saints. It's also been a while since I've watched uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. So yeah, same, same. Uh but in the case of Apocalypse Now, like when they were talking about Harvey Keitel, like in the beginning of the documentary, I was thinking to myself, I don't remember him being in that movie, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Like I also forgot Dennis Hopper was in it. So, but right. um, but then when they said that he was actually cast as the lead, and they filmed for like ten days, and then decided to dump him and go back, and it's just man, I mean, this was independently financed by Coppola, but the amount of money that they had to funnel into this thing, oh. with I just, mean he. he- he had a bunch of money at the time, thankfully for him, because he burned through tons of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just, you know, everything being on location in another country with tons mm-hmm. of crews just fil- filming in, like, the wilderness, not even on, like, a set where you can control shit. Right. And then, like, you know, they have helicopters and all the military gear that they have to rent can- for... Can I say what's I found to be the craziest part of this production? And there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack with this one. I think I know what it is, but go ahead. <laughs> that however the deal came about that to get real live military helicopters that Coppola basically like hired on the Philippine army yeah. to use their helicopters, but <laughs> Since there was a, in the midst of a civil war going on in the Philippines, that at any time they would might have to pull the helicopters from filming, in case they had to get into a battle. Yeah, which is crazy to think that if those were like currently being used military helicopters, they probably had live ammo on them when yeah, they were on set. Of course, because they showed footage of them like filming a scene, and then all of a sudden the helicopters just take off and fly away. And Coppola's like, "Wait, what's going on? What's going on?" And then somebody is yelling to him, like, "Oh, they got called away for a, for a fight." I mean, based on watching this documentary, I mean, it's the wild swinging seventies. Like, you know, a couple live rounds got shot off by accident. 
on this uh, movie set for sure. Yeah, the fact that, you know, you hear about stuff like um, Brandon Lee dying on the set of mm-hmm. The Crow or that, that guy who died on the set of uh, of The Walking Dead like a year or two ago who was like setting something up and like the right. woman, who, the stunt woman who died filming a scene for Deadpool 2. Like you hear about this stuff now, but like, what are the chances that somebody did die on the set of Apocalypse Now and we've just never heard about it? Not to say Probably. that they're like covering it up, but they could just... They might not even have known. Yeah, they filmed in another country. There were a lot of locals involved in the filming. It just... If you're worrying about tsunamis and civil wars, man, I mean, you might lose track of a few people. Yeah. I mean, they even said that there was one, like, night shoot where uh, they had... They were hearing rumors that the rebels were, like, right on the other side of a hill from them or something. Mm -hmm. Shit could go down at any time. It's just nuts. Just the undertaking. Like I say, most of the time it seems like Coppola was like in a mindset where he could control everything for the most part. Mm -hmm. And nothing seemed to get super duper out of his hands until Marlon Brando showed up. Right. (laughs) But um, yeah, just man, imagining like especially back in that era where it's like, you know, technology isn't even where it's at now, and they had to haul, like, fucking film cameras around everywhere. Just imagining the amount of, like, actual film stock that you go through filming for over 200 days. Yeah, forget it. God, just, man. Keeping that stuff safe, you know? Yeah. I never, like, I should probably should have checked to see, but um, what's the crazy Ben Stiller movie? Where it's like they're filming in the jungle. Oh, Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder. Like how much of that was just strictly based on stories from this? According to Wikipedia, I don't know about specific stories, but this documentary and Apocalypse Now, the movie, were both big influences on that film, which is I mean, they have to be, of course. Yeah, Yeah. they have to be, of course. Mm -hmm. It's like watching this, you know, it's it's highly entertaining, for one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen... Um, Apocalypse Now I probably saw it for the first time Like maybe like college age High schoolish But I, I, I've i seen it twice The first time I ever watched like the unrated Like director's cut The Redux Yeah That's the only one I've seen <laughs> Maybe that's like an hour longer or something ridiculous I remember at least one like long scene That I know isn't in the Oh they talk the about it in this documentary It's the, um, the French plastic right. farmers Right uh, Which I've and then I have seen the other time I saw just the normal theatrical cut. Yeah, I really have like for a couple of years now wanted to rewatch the film and intend to do so with the uh, regular theatrical version because mm-hmm. I do remember enjoying it when I watched it the first time. But the friend and I who were watching it together during that Frenchman scene just being like, "What the fuck is happening?" Because it's so yeah. long, comes out of nowhere, and I guess Coppola had an, like an idea for it which he explains in this documentary, but it certainly didn't come across to me (laughs) when I was watching the movie. I feel like as I was like starting up watching this one, I like very early on, I'm I'm just thinking not like real, not knowing the full story. I'm like, man, who the hell signed off on this ridiculous project? And it's like, oh, no one did. It's independent. It's all Coppola's money. Yeah. Makes sense because no movie studio would ever allow any of this to happen. Yeah. It's just, you know, it just it would never be filmed in the Philippines with an army 
you know, mm-hmm. using their real helicopters and the whole thing, yeah. killing real animals and the whole deal. I keep wanting to say how chaotic it felt, but I, I mean, at the same time, I do want to say that, like, based on the things I'd heard about the documentary, as I mentioned before, um, it never felt like that insane. No. But just, just imagining trying to fucking herd those cats, like, just all of the people involved mm-hmm. and the language barrier and just all of the like it's it's not like a movie now where they could go into the philippines and film just in front of a tree line and then go in with cg and add in like houses and smoke pillars and stuff like everything is practical in camera and Mm -hmm. just gigantic sets and literally just building like uh houses on the edge of a river with little (laughs) docks and right um, the fucking I temple do. that they find Kurtz in at the end. And then they bring in like an actual uh, Indian tribe who right. they say like rumors was, were talked about on set that like up until like this most recent generation, they were still he- considered headhunters. And uh, then like this documentary has some pretty fucking shocking footage of real animal mutilations. Mm-hmm. because the uh, this, like, Indian tribe that was brought in, they were allowed to, like, perform their rituals, like, right. on the set. So, like, on the set of, like, Kurtz's little temple at the end of the film, you just watch them, like, kill some pigs and slaughter a fucking cow, mm-hmm. which is pretty disturbing. Yeah, it's just, it's just nuts. It's all it's all around nuts. I I would agree. I think, like, the urban legend of this is more intense than the actual what you actually see in the documentary. Mm-hmm. I don't know if part of that is because, you know, Coppola's wife made it and maybe they, it doesn't feel like they hold back necessarily, but you never know if there could have been much crazier stuff that's in there mm-hmm. that maybe didn't make it in. I will say, I personally think that this documentary kind of makes Coppola look like a lunatic, but <laughs> I don't know how much of that is just from him being in the Philippines for so long and all the problems, but this just, there's a few different instances where Coppola is talking and just even like he, he was recorded talking about like covering up uh, Martin Sheen's oh, uh, right. heart attack. <laughs> you know, like there's certain things where I was just like, damn, I was like, or even his wife when she was being interviewed or she was just talking or whatever. And she's talking about like, it, you know, it's like, oh, it's okay if we lose all our money on this. You know, like, we'll be fine. Yeah, like, she's oh, like, was... we don't need this, like, 20-room Victorian-style right. house or whatever. Like, yeah. I kind of like the downsize. Oh, man, I was like, damn, the privilege. This is unreal. Just to hear that. It felt, they just felt, like, so Hollywood that, that just hearing some of that stuff was crazy. And then to hear what he went through and then, the, he's, you know, he's losing all the weight and, you know, he's having health problems, but then he would just say, like, some of the most outlandish shit, especially when it got to the heart attack thing. I was like, damn, I can't believe they put that in this movie for people to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might have had something to do with the fact that it came out over a decade after the movie. So, like, if it came out at the same time as the film, especially the way that, like, man, they kept so, like, this movie kept being delayed and. Like these days, everything is on the internet. And the minute there's like a little bit of a rumor about something, a billion sites are writing about it. But like back in the day, it was all like journalists and trade papers and stuff. And they kept on showing all the article headlines and things for like the people back in America, like writing about the movie and just lambasting Francis Ford Coppola for how long it was taking and like all the rumors of the budget and everything. 
Um, like at the time, if this had come out, they probably would have been raked over the coals a bit more. But right, you know, it's one, one it's one of those things you never think about, like how like reporting on this kind of stuff would have been in the seventies or eighties. I was really kind of surprised to see all that. News yeah. coverage. I mean, you'd have to go out of your way to find out anything about it. You'd have to buy yeah. like the trade papers, and right. I mean, they had like political cartoons about it, with yeah. like, like the life cycle of a palm tree. Yeah, that was, was like, funny. <laughs> was pretty funny. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's like damn, they're not holding back on this movie. Like, I was just kind of surprised. I guess in the internet age, we're even like kind of desensitized to movie news. Like, That's what I'm saying, and I think it's all kind of like. Um, it's just like you'll see like these days I'm inclined to just like scroll through Twitter and like I see a headline and I don't even necessarily feel like I have to read the article a lot of times because it's like, oh, I've seen the headline. I'm aware now. But like mm-hmm. that's just the fucking Internet age where everything's at our fingertips. And like if I was interested enough to go buy the paper back in the day to read something about this movie, I would probably sit down and read the article. And then you, the only thing you have to go on is what that writer happened to say. Right. And there's no one else to say anything against it because the fucking director is in the Philippines right now mm-hmm. filming like a boat exploding on a river or something right. <laughs> and covering up the fact that his star is dying of a heart attack. <laughs> Times are changing, Millsy. Mm. I think this this is worth watching just to get to like the Marlon Brando stuff. <laughs> Man, to hear like what he put Coppola through. And you hear stories about him in just in general, oh, yeah. like how much of an asshole he was and how just insane he was. But yeah, this man, it sucks. Because like I said earlier, it feels like the chaos really begins when he gets there. Like, yeah, for sure. You know, the character is supposed to be like living in the jungle for all this time. And he's supposed to be like gaunt with his rib cage showing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brando had promised to like lose some weight and then he shows up and he's fatter than he was before filming started. Right. And which like it's the, crazy when you watch the movie because you see him like you barely see him in the movie itself because mm-hmm. he's like all in shadow. And then it was cool in the documentary because Coplo's even like at this point, I was like, I'll deal with him being fat or I'll deal with him being heavy. Like we'll make it look like he's like, uh, you know, living like a gluttonous lifestyle out in the jungle, you know, as a king almost. But then, you know, he didn't even want to do that with him. Yeah, you know? Brando was just, at this point, he was just so up in his own head and couldn't listen to reason and was mm-hmm. just completely bonkers at this point. Like, you know, he fucked up and then Coppola is trying to fix the problem and he won't let him fix the problem because he didn't want to be portrayed as like this indulgent guy with the, who's just been sitting and munching and like, he didn't want to draw attention to how fat he was. And right. Right. Just man, at that point, it's, it's so crazy just to think, you know, Coppola had come off of the Godfather and the Godfather two, which were like huge deals and could have probably gotten pretty much anybody you wanted. And there's even that part where he, you hear him talking and he's saying like, you know, uh, if Brando dies, then, you know, it's not going to ruin the movie. I'll just get Jack Nicholson. And if I can't mm-hmm. get Jack Nicholson, I'll right. get Robert De Niro. And if I can't get Robert yeah. De Niro, I'll get Al Pacino. And he's just running through these people. And it's true. He probably could have had anybody he wanted. Yeah. Like all the top dogs, too. He just rattles them off. And the whole yeah. time I was like, I was nodding my head. I was like, yeah, I bet he could. Yeah. I mean, I like, he's I the guy who look just like. made The Godfather and The Godfather too. Right. Which is wild even when you think. Well, it worked out in his favor. Like, that's how he had money to independently finance it. But mm-hmm. 
you know, we're, I don't remember if they say were people throwing money at him to make this or not. I don't remember. The only time I remember them saying anything is um, there was a point where they went over budget because I think they had to rebuild the sets after the tsunami and they were $3 million over budget and United Artists had agreed to like release the film or something. So they mm-hmm. ponied up the $3 million with the caveat in, in writing that uh, if the film didn't make over $40 million, then Coppola would have to pay them the three hundred or the $3 million oh, back. Oh, right, right. Yep, yep. But then, like, this being pretty much an independent production, I mean, they went through a lot of hard times getting the movie made and a lot of insanity. And then even after it was filmed, it took almost three years to come out. But when it finally did, it made $150 million in the box yeah. office. And so I imagine that through all that, Coppola and company cleaned up. Oh, I mean, he'd had to have, yeah. I mean, him especially, if he, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of how that works, but. Yeah. You know, and especially, even though you think about that, like what he went through, like, can you imagine the relief you would feel if you like put in that all that effort and everything they went through? Yeah. Even just what we saw in this and then for it to actually hit. Imagine if it just was a dud. Well, there's a part in the documentary towards the end where he's doing an interview and he is saying like there's how did he put it? He was talking about like one of the worst things that a film can be is pretentious. And it's like a uh, fine yeah. line between an artist who really has a vision and then they're not able to pull it off and a movie just feels pretentious. And mm-hmm. like he had this vision and it was like full on him. He had fired the writer John Milius at some point and was like writing his own version of the script. And John Milius did end up coming back on, but this was like all him. It was his money. It was his idea. It was his vision. It was his script. It was his cast and everything. Right. And then if it hadn't worked, it, oh. Just imagine. But, you know, the movie comes out. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It won a mm-hmm. couple of Academy Awards. And it made a ton of money. And it is now a time-honored classic. Right. So, like, when a guy makes The Godfather, The Godfather 2, and this back-to-back-to-back with The Conversation, which is also a really good movie with Gene Hackman, it's like, you know, you can't... He, he obviously knows what he's doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Clearly. But then the thing I thought was kind of interesting is I was like, oh, well, what did he follow this up with? And I was looking at his filmography and it's like, those were all the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then the 80s, like a couple things I recognize, but like, it almost feels like uh, for at least a decade or more, um, this movie, Apocalypse Now, was like the last like big deal noteworthy thing that he made it's like he got it all out of his system early and then he just made stuff like peggy sue got married in the 80s it broke him and directed captain eo (laughs) oh right right yeah maybe this is the one that broke the camel's back man maybe or he just decided to take it easy and make some like lighter fare for a few years right it's like i'm just gonna work at the local studio i'm not taking any trips i'm not uh taken production to a foreign country yeah highly entertaining yeah definitely worth a watch um Mm -hmm. originally aired on showtime when it came out um but even did not like it he was not a fan of it apparently oh really i didn't see that 
I read that somewhere that he tried, I don't know if he necessarily like blocked it, but he kind of like wrote it off for a long time because he didn't like how he was portrayed. That's weird that like, because it was his wife who yeah. had like a big hand in it. But then I think eventually that now, like you said, it, it's on like the most recent like Blu-ray release. Yep. So. And the documentary in 91, it like made big waves and like won some awards and stuff. Yeah. No, but um, I don't think we mentioned. So she, his wife Eleanor, directed all of the uh, the like on location stuff, and then for the actual release in '91, um, a couple of guys named George Hickenlooper and Fox Barr, uh, like right. co-directed some interviews and things, and helped her put the movie together. Right. Um, George Hickenlooper is the guy who directed the original short film some call it a some folks call it a sling blade that the movie sling blade was based on. Oh. All right. And the other dude Fox Barr was mm-hmm. one of the co-creators of Mad TV. <laughs> wow. Which I thought was Man. weird. Hollywood baby. <laughs> and then this really has nothing to do with anything, but I thought it was hilarious. I was just looking up a couple of the people um involved in the film uh the original film Apocalypse Now. And John Milius, who I mentioned, was one of the writers on the movie. And uh, I knew that he had done Conan the Barbarian. He wrote and directed that movie. But I was looking him up. And uh, in addition to writing and directing some other stuff you would have heard of, I'm scrolling down his page and I see the movie Lone Wolf McQuaid in his credits. Yes. Which you and I watched for a series of Chuck Norris uh, review podcasts that uh, I did a couple of years ago for Sidetracked. And I was like, did he write that movie? And then I scrolled down and he's credited as spiritual advisor. Oh, boy. John Milius, spiritual oh, advisor boy. for Lone Wolf McQuaid, which I thought was I like hilarious. It. That's amazing. That that might be my first ever like podcast appearance was that Lone Wolf McQuaid episode. Yeah, it might have been, actually. So. Yeah, we'll always have a soft spot for that one. <laughs> well, it's just an awesome movie anyway. Well, All those Chuck Norris movies I watched, that was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. Easily. Shout out Long Wolf McQuaid. Yeah. Shall we move on, Mills? Yeah, let's do it. Well, I say next up we go to 1996 and Full Tilt Boogie. Mm-hmm. Part of the advantage of the picture we're doing is that there's no horror for the first half of the movie so that you can really invest yourself with the characters and feel part of the movie before anything happens to them that you don't want to happen to them, so that you really you know, feel the horror a little bit more. A lot of horror films start delivering the horror too soon, and you don't really have any eyes into the picture. What this is enabling us to do is, is uh, really get you to be a part of the picture before the horror element comes in, which is always the best mm-hmm. thing about most horror novels, mm-hmm. is that there's yeah. a lot of time spent with, uh, with the characters before the horror comes in, and then, and then you care about them a lot more, and then you're really part of the part of the movie. I mean, n- not to compare ourselves in any way, shape, or form, but I mean, uh, one of the things that actually makes Stephen King's novels so like scary when you read them is, he, you know, he, he's never given credit for like he, he's a uh, uh, for like he's one of the best writers of characterization that there is. I mean, you know, he writes these incredibly believable believable people who you really kind of embrace as yourself and take into your heart and then after you've totally assimilated with these people then he literally puts them through hell and you know because he's Stephen King you know that you know the kind of stuff he's doing he's not afraid to take them anywhere so now it, it's really painful 
right. All right, because you truly do care about these people. They're not stick figures. All right. Now, our characters are actually a bunch of jerks. All right. <laughs> but they find fun those, Yeah, but they're fun jerks. Yeah, they're fun jerks. All right. But but. I actually have this down as coming out in 1997. I think didn't uh, From Dust Till Dawn come out in 96? If you say it, I'll believe it. I just knew it was the year after. I thought it was 95, 96, but oh. I'm not looking at anything that says that, so I'll yeah. go with it. Either way, released about a year later. Um, I'm not exactly sure how this film got released. Right. But again, also available on at least one version of um, the From Dusk Till Dawn right. uh, home video release. This one is vastly different from Hearts of Darkness. Well, it's funny... All three of these documentaries are kind of different beasts from one another. Yeah, for sure. Because Hearts of Darkness was kind of like, you know, a lot of stuff shot on set um, and a lot of like interviews after the Mm -hmm. fact. Yeah. And then like turned into like a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. This feels of the three the most like a special feature. Be- For sure. Because it pretty much just follows in chronological order the making of the movie. But the thing that was different, that felt different about this from like a typical special feature is honestly there wasn't a lot of focus on the filming of the movie. It's just like a lot of like interviewing the cast and mm-hmm. – or not even the cast but like the crew and yeah. just like – less like someone was making a documentary about – the film from dusk till dawn and more like somebody just being kind of a fly on the wall on yeah. a movie set, which I'll tell you this one I enjoyed for that reason. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to watch because it's very much just like, you know, it's like a run and gun kind of style where it's like, if you were just on the set, these are the, like the things you would have seen. And it's like the most random stuff. It's like uh crazy Quentin Tarantino having to have his one, coffee cup or there's <laughs> yeah. a you know there's a union dispute or it's like the the gaffers going out and getting drunk on whatever night after filming and it's like, talking about onset romances and uh yeah. and the best butt competition <laughs> yeah yeah just lots of like random it feels it's like you said hearts of darkness is definitely like the retrospective look back at a movie mm-hmm. where this is like the you know kind of filmed by the seat of our pants comes right out right after the movie's released more or less. Yeah. You know, and and it feels even just like that kind of more of a mid nineties style with like, well, just everything. Yeah. Just, um, I mean, just the, the look and feel of everything and all of the people involved. And then just the way that it's edited with like the, uh, the titles on black in between everything, like week one, week two, paparazzi, whatever. It definitely has a nineties independent, uh, film vibe. Mm -hmm. Big time. And I mean, I'm pretty sure they say somewhere in there that Robert Rodriguez like hired these people to film this stuff. Kind of just like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's wife had been like asked by her husband to film the stuff for uh, for that film. It f- I think mm-hmm. uh, this being like an independent film production as well with like a non-union crew. I think he was just like, hey, you were a like assistant something or other on Pulp Fiction. Why don't you film some stuff for this? And then they just happened to have enough to turn into a pretty entertaining little look at filmmaking. Right. Uh. Can I tell you what my favorite part of this one was? Please. It wasn't the best butt contest? No, sir. 
I'll give you one more guess, and then I'll tell you. Was it my favorite part, which was when Fred Williamson was interviewed, he was wearing half of a monster yes. mask on his face? Yes, of course it was. Uh, triple uh, threat MVP, Fred Williamson. Yeah. You'll all all remember from uh, 1990 Bronx Warriors, mm-hmm. uh, who we, in that episode, I mentioned how much I loved him from, from Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. Now, he gives like a quick... Uh, look back at his pretty you know, interesting sounding ca- career. I will say, if you look at his IMDb, mm-hmm. he was in seven thousand black exploitation movies, and I have to imagine now, knowing what I know from his interview in this, that they were pretty much all produced by him. But go ahead. Yeah, I mean you're right. So he's just kind of he just touches on it a little, like how he did things, which sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. It's like this is this, it's Fred Williamson. Talk, you know, probably never gets a chance to tell this side of his history. At least at this point in time. Sure. Man, all the while, the entire time, he's like sitting on a milk crate in a back alley with full vampire makeup on. <laughs> the entire time. It was I'm not even like, sure if you see him without the makeup on at all. Wasn't it? Was it a full mask or it looked like an application where it was like from like under his eyes down was like turned into a big crazy monster mouth? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, it's just him talking candidly. You can see his mouth oh. moving inside the monster mouth. Oh he's a little God. hard to hear and he has to repeat himself a few times. And he's talking about serious business. Like you can tell because yes. he's talking about like, you know being a black man, being in film at the time when he was getting into it. And the mm-hmm. reason that he started his own production company was because he had stipulations of like what kind of characters he wanted to play that Hollywood wouldn't let him play. Right. And his right. specifications were a, he wanted to win in the end B, he wanted to get the girl and like, C, he wanted to like kick ass or something like that right. or like not die in the movie. And so he created his own production company Mm-hmm. And then, like, got financing for a, just a ton of yeah. awesome-looking black exploitation films, where he's just the badass main character who right. always gets the girl, kills the bad guy, and lives through the whole film. And as he's like telling a- this story, like, completely straight-faced, <laughs> fucking yeah. monster mask on—it's oh, it's hilarious. So like, I was, I was like in stitches during that. I was like, I can't believe this is still going on. This is amazing. Is he going to be in the makeup the entire time? I was like, I want to shake the hand of whoever got him to do all this like <laughs> as soon as he got out of the makeup chair or whatever it was. Yeah, that was amazing. Oh, Millsy, I knew you would you'd zone in on that. <laughs> this is this is why you and I came together across time <laughs> and space to do this podcast together yes. because that was my 100% favorite part of this documentary oh, as well. Just w- waiting for him to show up, period. I was hoping. And then that was just like the biggest, best payoff ever. Yeah. Man. But yeah, they had a lot of cool little like, this movie is very candid. Um, very. <laughs> there's definitely some instruments. There's nothing like super bad or offensive, but there's definitely a couple of parts where I bet you some people look back at this now and cringe because of oh, things that they sure. said in front of a camera. Oh, for sure. Um, like the best butt contest. There's probably a right. lot of people who would have lots of issues with that taking place on a mm-hmm. film set now. Yeah. Well, it was the guys, though, so I guess that's a little different. You wouldn't normally expect It was it, guys and girls, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure it was just all guys. Oh, and was it was it? The, the, but it was the girls voting. Oh, they kept talking about, like, Juliette Lewis's butt, though, so I thought that she was one of them as well. Oh. 
But I don't know. either way, there's there's that. There's like it still is, yeah. On the final day of filming, um, they had to match the sunlight to a previous shot, but there was cloud cover, so they were waiting for the clouds to go away. And there were three mm. guys oh, yeah. just standing by the craft services table, like banging on uh like huge drink dispensers and stuff, like basically just doing a typical Native American, you know song to kind of like yeah yes. to like bring the sun out <laughs> mm-hmm. i was like that's that's cringy that's and, then, like, and then they bring mm-hmm. that back in the end credits <laughs> mm-hmm. did you make right. it that far where it plays yeah. over the end credits i did i did oh yeah just Which some... for a second i was like wait is that that again and i was like wow yeah. it is Oof. and even stuff like the scene of like the women sitting outside and just talking about like all the men that the one woman has slept with and then Quentin Tarantino coming out and kind of bragging about how he could have sex uh, with any woman yeah. on set and how Bruce Willis told him that or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Quentin is just, you know, Quentin is very Quentin throughout this movie, this movie and all and life, I think. So yeah, he's a fascinating individual who I would really love to see an interview with him by someone other than Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> yeah. Someone who's not like a close personal friend and see what kind of uh, see what right. kind of information we could drag out of him because he is an unusual guy. But goddamn, does he make a good movie? I mean, he does. I mean, this well, was this like no? Was this the first one he wrote that he didn't direct, or was that that was that was um, true romance? Did that come before yeah, this? I I think so. I'm not a hundred percent sure that time. Yeah, me neither. But but it's right around there anyway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, pretty. Much, I mean, I really like Robert Rodriguez. I mean, certain movies I like more than others, some I don't like, but like him as a person, like he's a fan of movies, mm-hmm. which I like. I mean, he's not in this a ton. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. He's, I don't think he really has an interview. You see him a lot because he's like yeah. directing the film, but he like isn't involved really in any way. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it's funny, like I always say about like behind the scenes stuff, it was cool to see. I guess it's like a thing you don't ever think of, but like the director, you know, is there for the scenes, but it's like that assistant director is the one that's like really like barking orders Mm -hmm. and like keeping everything like in line and on schedule. Meanwhile, Robert Rodriguez is just playing his guitar every time he's not actually doing something (laughs) important. Yeah. He's just like strumming a guitar, like waiting. I mean, just whatever that, that, that job is like, you know, just like sit around and like have, you know, have your underling kind of. Be mm-hmm. the mean one. It's pretty wild to see. I feel like Robert Rodriguez, I half like him and I half think he's kind of a douchebag. Um, oh, yeah. Just just that thing of like, you know, everybody's working hard all around you and like they're wheeling you around in a chair and you're still just like playing your fucking guitar on set. Like <laughs> it just feels like I know it's his movie and it's like an independent production and everything, but it just feels like he's not taking shit super seriously. And oh, I don't, I don't know. know if it's just it, tur- I just kinda it, got, it turned like, me off his... a little bit, I'll be honest. Oh. See, I didn't I just kind of thought it was maybe like his personality or just like you know, that's what the other guy's job is is to, supposed to do that. If I don't it know. was like one time, but almost every time you see him when he's on set, he's got a fucking guitar in his hand. <laughs> to the point where like, oh, it's time to do a shot now here. Let me hand this off to some <laughs> some like assistant down here right. next to my yeah. platform that I'm on and right. The intern that holds my guitar. Yeah. But, you know, 
making him seem a little more like a relatable common man. I did think it was funny in the beginning of the film, they're at a Fangoria convention in 1995, and he goes on stage wearing a fanny pack. (laughs) (laughs) Fanny packs are hot, mid-90s mills. Yeah, I just thought that was funny. Mm -hmm. Just something about this one I dig, just the... uh, the style everyone's wearing like those kind of 90s shirts where it was like you know Tweety Bird or Winnie the Pooh like plastered all over them and everyone's wearing like MTV shirts and shit like that Uh everybody's got like circular glasses yeah and like just long hair in their face yeah it just definitely felt grungy (laughs) big time it was cool it was cool to see like they had like the behind the scenes of uh when they're building the bar facade, mm-hmm. and then I kind of I kind of missed about the whole fire part. Did they mean to blow it up, or they? It, it wasn't seems supposed like, to happen at that time. It seems like they in, like they intended for fire to shoot out, but they didn't intend for the whole front of the building to catch on fire. <laughs> but then they were kind of okay with it. They just had to like paint some parts of it or something. I guess so. I didn't like I again. Know. It's something where I haven't seen the movie in long enough that I don't even remember what that scene right. entails. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, and then they uh, there's barely any shots of them during this talk of the in, during the inside during the movie. Yeah, you know, inside the bar, there's only a couple times they show anything there. A little bit of action when they first start to talk about Juliet Lewis. Some, um, but then like fucking Harvey Keitel, they made it yeah, seem like he refused to give an he, interview because it's like he did refuse. Yeah, he's like, I'm here to make uh, from dusk till dawn, not full tilt boogie. And the only way that they were able to get any footage of him talking was uh, Quentin Tarantino offered to interview him for the camera. And I guess Harvey Keitel was like, oh, I'll talk to Quentin. Yeah. And then I kind of feel like uh, his whole diatribe was like, that turned me off of Keitel. I was like, oh, what is he even talking about? Yeah, he seems like like super uptight. Not like you would, like he's the guy who played like the original bad lieutenant and like, pulls a cute girl over so he can masturbate on the side of her car because he's a cop mm-hmm. and he can get away with it. And yep. it's like, I wouldn't think that he would be the like super uptight, like all like I'm an actor kind of guy. Yeah. Well, but yeah, based on this little snippet, I was like, Oh boy. Yeah. I was like, what's going on with Kaitel here? And maybe that's why he clashed with Francis Ford Coppola when they were making uh yeah. Apocalypse Now. <laughs> maybe. Couple is like, you need to be a little more loosey-goosey on set, man. <laughs> I did, did this uh, Full Tilt Boogie is certainly the loosey-goosey one of the three, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. But that's like, that's that's its charm. It's definitely like straight behind the scenes. Like there's no, where there's like a firm narrative with uh, Hearts of Darkness. Mm-hmm. This one, like you said, it even like starts off as a goof where the uh, Quentin and George Clooney are walking into like the BGs through the production office. Yeah, they're whatever. like making a little skit out of them being late uh, to set or whatever. Yeah, that was funny. But yeah, um, this one is more of like a timeline. Like you know, yeah. you'll see week one, and then it'll just be a bunch of random nonsense, and then week two, and mm-hmm. then they'll do cutaways to like the different kinds of people on set and. Just like a completely different feeling where everybody's attitude was very good and everyone seemed like optimistic. And even when they had to work like a super long day and they were all like getting on the bus tired at the end of the day, they still had smiles on their face and stuff. And it just seemed like this must have been a really fun set to be on. Yeah. They still like 
you know, like had parties and were booze hounds afterwards mm-hmm. after like 16 hour days. But yeah. Where like the, the hotel staff had to come out and have Quentin Tarantino tell them to be quiet because there were people staying in the hotel who weren't part of the movie. <laughs> right. Right. This one watching this cause I enjoy it. Cause it's like the kind of stuff I'm always looking for, but it made me want to watch that HBO show that they, uh, the Ben Affleck and Matt Damon made. Oh, it's a Project um, Greenlight. Yeah, Project Greenlight. I've only seen one season of that. I think it was the most recent one. The one where they made that terrible comedy about the yeah. uh, the rich With that people car crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie's awful. Oh yeah. the The season's great. I like really enjoyed watching that. Mm-hmm. Man, that movie's terrible. But yeah, Jesse anyway. Jesse uh, suggested that I watch that when it was airing. And uh, we watched that season and talked about it on Sidetracked. And then Mm. I was interested enough that I went back and I watched. There's four seasons total. I watched, I think, the first two seasons because they're on HBO Go. And then Mm -hmm. I think the third season was on a different channel. So I haven't been able to watch that. That's the season where they made the horror movie Feast. Oh, yeah. And that's the one I'd really like to see because I had seen that movie Years ago, not even knowing that it was part of Project Greenlight, and enjoyed it. Oh, that movie's wretched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember liking it back in like 2008 when I saw it. Mm. Yeah, we'll have to. Uh, we'll talk off air about more uh, Project Greenlight here. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Mm. I feel like we've about covered it on full tilt. Um, I'll just say before we move on, directed by a woman named Sarah Kelly, mm-hmm. and she uh, she's mostly done like miscellaneous stuff on film sets. Like she, on IMDb, she's listed under miscellaneous crew for a lot of stuff. Worked on a couple of like Tarantino things. Um, the one other thing she has quote unquote directed is uh, some movie. I I can't even tell on IMDb if it ever actually was released but it's called The Lather Effect. came out in 2006, and it's like a dramatic, well, not dramatic, but it's like a fictional film. Um, And they don't even really have a proper plot synopsis on IMDb. And like, so a user had written a plot synopsis for it, and I couldn't even understand what the hell the user was trying to say the plot was when I read it. So Mm -hmm. Mm. her claim to fame seems to be full tilt boogie. (laughs) All right. That works. Yeah. With that, shall we get into Overnight? Yes, sir. From 2003. I know that I am the best that there is. He deserves everything that's coming to him. What is Harvey doing? If I was a priority project over at Miramax... Harvey brought him out into the public eye, made him a star. Don't sit there and call me liar when you don't know what you're talking about. Troy, keep your mouth shut. I just went over there. It's not allowed entrance. His attitude is, I made you, I can unmake you. Grabbing talented people and he ignores them. What? His opinion has been validated by success. He may feel that validates everything. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I had seen this before. Had you ever seen this? This is the only one I've seen as well. Okay. First off, Boondock Saints. Uh, old old Boondock Saints. Introduced to me by your friend and mine, Brian Weiner, back okay. when we were in high school. 
loved it then, loved it over the years. I haven't seen it in like probably three or four years, but the last time I watched it, I remember thinking like, oh, this is just going to be flashy, like late 90s post-Quentin Tarantino garbage, and I'm probably not going to like it that much. But I still loved the hell out of it the last time I saw it. Mm. Um, what is your history with that film? Um, I know I saw it. It's been a while. I mean, what, it came out in 99, I think. Yeah. But then, you know, it took a while for it to catch steam. I would, you know, I certainly saw it in the, you know, home video days. I was probably, you know, out of high school at that because, you know, graduated in 2000. So I'd say it was certainly after that. Yeah, Brian, long, Brian you know, probably told me about it in like 2002, if I had yeah, to guess. I couldn't tell you how I first saw it, but um, let me see. I, uh, I owned it. Uh, I loved it. You know, I used to watch it a lot. I actually, um, when I was in college, Troy Duffy came to my college. Really? <laughs> and and he did like a talk with Norman Reedus and Rocco were with him. They did like a three-man kind of like event. Wow. Talking about like the movie and question and answer. And they're like, they, they like talked about the sequel ideas. It was pretty, the t- sequel was far off at this point. Mm-hmm. But um, did Troy Duffy come off like a giant asshole when you saw him? I don't. It's hard to remember to be <laughs> honest, but no, I don't think so. Because I, to be honest, I don't remember where in that I saw overnight. Um, but I just know, like, I had a, you know, I had like this kind of like landscape poster of the brothers with the, with the prayer like in my room. Mm. You know, like I was into it like that. I definitely, I had at some point in high school, back when I used to wear a black trench coat, mm-hmm. not because of the Boondock Saints, but because of Kevin Smith, um, I had definitely, among other things, memorized the whole, like, uh, like the verse that they say and everything yeah. before they kill people, and I would say that because I thought it was super cool. Um. So, yes, same. Like, I thought that was cool. Like... uh even like back then, like being like set in Boston, I feel like it's always it was always kind of cool because you never there was always like random stuff set in Boston, you know, around that time. You mm-hmm. know, there was like Mystic River and uh, you know this, and then like eventually it was like Gone Baby Gone, and then you know the I feel town, like it's pretty that was popular now to set. It's stuff popular in, now, in but Boston for a long time, what like uh, Blown Away was set in Boston, but it was <laughs> there was always just like random kind of movies were. Nothing I feel like was ever filmed here. Mm-hmm. You know, very. I'd have to look, but I feel like uh, not a ton of stuff. Um, so yeah, so I owned Boondock Saints. Um, you know, I'd seen it plenty of times back then. I gotta say, I'm not really a fan of it anymore. Really? Yeah, I had seen it the last time, like in the last few years, and it really like started to sour on me. And then I watched like the first forty minutes. Just the other day when I was, after I'd watched the, after I'd watched Overnight, mm-hmm. um, to, to me it feels just very, now it feels just very post-Tarantino, corny. I'll like, agree that it feels dated at this point, but there's a part of me that the last time I watched it, which admittedly was like three or four years ago, still was like totally into it. And I don't know what that I says mean, about me, but. I mean. You know, I've I've started to feel like I'm not sure like how much of like nostalgia is a factor for me anymore when it comes to stuff. Like if I liked it back then, 
don't know if that necessarily is like a factor for me if I still like something because I, I see I feel like I just noticed that more and more as I rewatch things from my youth. Mm-hmm. But this one was just a recent one. I was just like, oh, I was like kind of surprised I like this as much as I did. Not to like trash completely our people that like it or anything, but there's even in like watching this first forty minutes, there's just like so many little things that bug the shit out of me, and I just thought it was. A lot of corny stuff. It's a very abrasive like, film, for sure. Very abrasive. It's like overacted to like, like so intensely. Kind of just makes me crazy. Like, even like the brothers. Like, I like them. I even, you know, I think Norman Reedus is cool. Like, the whole deal. But just like their whole looks and the, you know, the tattoos on their trigger fingers. It's just, <laughs> it, it just feels like so. It's just, you know. Corny is the best way I could probably say for most of the stuff in the movie. Like, yeah, it's at times it wants to be, you know, it it wants to treat itself like it's, you know, a a realistic picture. It's like even when um, Willem Dafoe is talking about like this isn't the movies or whatever. But meanwhile, the coaster is Ron Jeremy. Yeah, it's got Ron Jeremy. I mean, they're they're falling through the ceiling in that one room, and it's just like, you know, in the hotel and. Like that scene even leads up. Then it's like, then there's slow motion as they're like executing these guys. And the one brother's doing like a Christ pose. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> like, there's so much like eye roll stuff in this movie now. But which is great. I mean, for something like you could say I loved, it's just, it's just a different, and maybe it's just me. Or yeah, I well, I feel like because it sounds horribly douchey, but um, just, it's just very different. I feel like, so basically, uh, you know, we should get more into talking about Overnight instead of Boondock of Saints, but uh, it stands to reason we give a little backstory on this here. Well, it needs my preamble, I think, for what how I feel about Overnight. Yeah. So. Um, but Boondock Saints itself, uh, <laughs> through all of Troy Duffy just being a self-centered asshole, um, mm-hmm. the film ended up only getting released in five theaters for one week. Right. During that time, earned thirty thousand uh, dollars, and then what really saved it was Blockbuster Video kind of picked the movie up and put it into a line of releases called Blockbuster Exclusive, which was like direct-to-video films that they featured as like, "Hey, you can't see this in theaters. Check it out from mm. us exclusively." And then word of mouth made it a huge hit on DVD, and. Uh, not long after its release in North America, it grossed uh, north of fifty million dollars on DVD and home video sales. Right. That Troy Duffy got zero. Troy Duffy from. saw none of that <laughs> because oh, he was an idiot brutal. and signed away the rights for the home video release because he just thought he was going to be the hot shit when it hit theaters. Yeah. Um, Which... Now later on, he did sue the small production company who released the film in theaters for one week and received a percentage of the royalties for the film and the rights to make the sequel, which is how that happened. Mm-hmm. But, right. you know, as popular as the movie was, and you got to think, in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, people buying tons of copies of this were probably people like you and me who were, like, in our, like, early 20s, late teens during that time period. Oh, totally. People who would, you know, wear black trench coats, quote the movie, and hang posters of them on their walls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... um like that's not going to be indicative necessarily of many other walks of life aside from, you know, Caucasian male 
aged 18 to 35. (laughs) But, like, I was a little surprised to see that uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score for Boondock Saints is only, like, a 28. Because I thought just, like, nostalgia and, you know, kitsch factor and whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's, um, like, I'm looking at the movie now and saying, like, I haven't watched it super recently. But am I just, like, fully misreading the movie or can I not see the forest for the trees here? But I, I mean, I would say yes after what I said because I'm not surprised it's got a 28. Like, yeah. I don't think it's, you know, it's particularly well made or, you know. I really got to watch it or anything. I think that's what it really comes should. down to. I mean, there's parts of it I still like. I really like Billy Connolly mm-hmm. as uh, the Duke. You know, I just, I'll always think he was cool. But I just love just... Rocco, man. My See, recollection like, is Rocco is great. Even, even that's just like so much like over the top <laughs> screaming and swearing and yeah. like like the documentary, it's endless cigarette smoking. Uh, yeah. Like so it's just it's just so much so well, much stuff. I you should watch it and I would love to hear your new opinion. I won't knock you if you still love it. I mean like <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. Yeah. But uh so overnight, for anybody who yes. hasn't seen it. Basically, it's an insane, like, rags to riches, but the riches never really came kind of story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, how this fucking happened. So Troy Duffy uh, grew up in Boston, decides, so he's in a band, and I guess he moved out to the West Coast because that's where, like, music producers and stuff are. So he and I guess his bandmates in The Brood, moved out to the West Coast, and he starts working at, like, a dive bar called Jay Sloan's. And while he's there, like, allegedly on his breaks uh, in between work, he wrote the script for Boondock Saints. And because he was, like, out in Hollywood, he was able to pass it to someone who passed it to someone who passed it to someone. And it ended up getting a lot of traction, and different studios wanted to buy the script from him. Ends up at Miramax, and Harvey Weinstein offers him $450,000 for the script, agrees to let a guy who has never been to film school, never filmed anything in his life, direct the movie with a $15 million budget. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, it's just like they fell in love with each other. And Harvey Weinstein offered to buy the J. Sloan's bar that... When I originally heard that story, I thought... Oh, Jay Sloan's must be his like hangout from when he was like a young guy or whatever. But no, he hadn't yeah. been in uh, on the West Coast for that long. Like, I don't know why he was so yeah. attached to this bar. It's just a shithole he started working at. Yeah, but Harvey Weinstein was gonna buy it and then co-own it with Troy Duffy, <laughs> and then right. like because of all this heat, at the same time, Madonna's record label was like, "Hey, we want to put out your band's album." Mm-hmm. So like, literally, hence the title of the movie, overnight. This guy becomes like the hot shit and it seems like everybody wants a piece of him. And from Mm -hmm. minute one, he is just so delusional, self-absorbed and such an utter asshole that he just fucks up every one of the unbelievably lucky opportunities that were bestowed upon him by the universe. For, for one person, like in this movie, he so regularly just like comes off like brutally self-important and like makes tons of threats. And he's always like demanding recognition mm-hmm. of like the things he's done. Putting like down everybody movie. else. 
oh, no one else. Yeah, he. no one would be anywhere without him. It's just, it's kind of unreal. Now, if people haven't seen Overnight, like, it's, it's directed by two guys that were friends of Troy Duffy. Yeah, personal friends of his. Yeah, who were there to, like, make basically just documentary-style film the production of the album and the movie. Yeah, they were managing the band at that point. And then Troy Duffy was just like, hey, would you guys, he's he's like, oh, I'm about to blow up and be this big fucking deal. Guys, film everything. Mm-hmm. That yeah. bit him in the ass. <laughs> it bit him in the ass. I mean, it's one thing I'll say about, I feel like the documentary like starts off real fast. Like it, it like front loads a lot of info about the bar and. You know, they don't they don't spend really like any much time at all, like kind of setting the stage, I feel like. Yeah, it really feels like it begins like the deal has just been made five minutes ago and then yeah. they turn on the cameras because that's kind of the way it happened. Right. And they don't bother to go back and do like a 15 minute preamble like Troy Duffy grew up here and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, which I feel like it needed because I mean, like I was so like aware of the story from like being a fan back in the day and all that, but. I'd be curious to see if someone just didn't know anything and just watched overnight, like how they would think about it. I don't think you need that kind of stuff, like, you know, backstory on him or anything, just because um, this is just such like a character. I don't want to say it's them, the directors making a character assassination piece. It's a personal character assassination piece. Like they just put up on screen all the shitty things that he did. And I don't think that humanizing him in the beginning is going to make it any better, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't even say, like, the humanizing, but just telling you, like, how he got here. Because I feel like it, at least in my eyes, I was like, how did he even, like, get in cahoots with Weinstein, you know what yeah. I mean? But just, like, a little bit. Certainly not a humanizing, because, you know, he certainly digs the grave for himself. Yeah, in every you, goddamn scene. Yeah, I mean, clearly... I mean, clearly these guys have an agenda. Well, you know, to show him as being horrible. I mean, because they were burned by him. Sure. And I mean, it just feels like if you're going to show footage of him that's candidly shot, he's going to come off like an asshole no matter what. Yeah. Um, there was a little like, uh, f- so I couldn't actually find this to rent anywhere. So I ended up buying a copy of the DVD. And there's like a five minute, um, like segment from some like Hollywood news show from back when this documentary came out in 2003 with the two directors. And um, you can actually find it on YouTube as well. And uh, the woman interviewing them asks them outright, like, so is this movie a revenge piece? And the one director says, this is not a revenge piece because if it was, we could have put way worse stuff in here. Mm. Like they talk about how, you know, they don't give any specific examples, but they say that there are plenty of instances of him making racial remarks and sexist remarks and homophobic remarks that they left out that they could have put in. So I, I feel like it's an agenda film in as much as they didn't have to release it, but if you were going to release anything, it's yeah. going to make him look like a shithead because he just is. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly there's no holding that back, man. Like you said, he kind of, he gives it to everyone. Mm-hmm. It's like horrible. A monster as uh Weinstein is, you know, like 
you're not surprised that he drops the whole thing during the course of this documentary. Yeah. The shit that Troy Duffy says is unreal. Yeah. Like Harvey Weinstein made and broke this guy within the course of like two years. And yeah, you understand why, because it's just, I don't know, man, it's just unbelievable how fucking privileged he feels about mm-hmm. everything. And he just really like, it's this several times during it where he's just like, no one has ever done this in this industry. Yeah, it you feels know, like he's narrating his own biography yes, or something. Yeah. And then he shits on Keanu Reeves, and I was like, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just not having this, you know? Well, there's How also, like, he? you know, he originally wanted Kenneth Branagh to play the uh, the Willem Dafoe part in the movie, and they were, like, going back and forth and, like, phone calls and stuff. And then when things started to fall apart a little bit, they actually have footage of him on the phone with, like, Kenneth Branagh's representative who said that he passed on the role and he immediately hangs up the phone and just starts like calling him names and shit, mm-hmm. like yeah. right in front of the camera. And they put that in the movie and it's just like, right. what a fucking asshole. Yeah. Like it, it's like any, any like person you meet that would do the same thing. Like, Oh, it's 10 seconds ago when you thought he was going to be in your movie, you loved him. And he's like the best thing ever. Yeah. But no, now he backs out. Now he's a piece of shit and you hate him. He's like, Oh, he's not even a good actor. Like, yeah. And there's a couple other people, that he just, like, bashes on during the mm-hmm. course of the movie, like, actors. Like, oh, I would never work with that piece of shit. Like, right. he was terrible in this movie or that. I think it might have been Keanu Reeves, the one that I'm specifically no. thinking yeah, of. Yeah, Keanu Reeves is, like, the first one he opens up on, like. Yeah. I don't know. It just He goes on, like, so many, like, tirades about everything. Yeah. But, and at the same time, just talking about, like, how amazing he is and how, like, important they all are. And then it's just, like. It'll be him just jarring, and then the camera will pan, and it'll be like four guys just like uh, smoking cigarettes and looking uncomfortable. And, and, and <laughs> yeah, like his the rest of his bandmates, man. I felt so bad for them oh, because yes. like none of them ever spoke up, and then finally, like everything has been falling apart for a long time, and like the music stuff isn't really happening. And mm-hmm. then his brother is the lead singer of the band, and they have like a band meeting. And it feels like Troy Duffy doesn't even want to be there. And the brother's basically saying, like, look, you've been so involved with the movie and everything that we just feel like you're not here for this band and something's got to change. And you can tell how hard it is for his brother to say something to him, probably because he's not as big of a personality as Troy Duffy and has known him his whole life for being, like, you know, this kind of self-important guy. And he's mm-hmm. just like laying his heart out on the line, and now you feel so bad for him because of he feels like a fucking wounded dog. Oh, sure. And then Troy is just sitting there taking it all in, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, please handle this with a little bit of tact. And then as mm-hmm. soon as his brother's done talking, Troy just like s- just starts like basically verbally beating him and putting him mm-hmm. in his place, and talking about how like he doesn't have to do anything anybody else wants and he like he's the only reason that they're in this position and this and that and yeah oh that's another thing that through all of this they finally do atlantic records like puts out their album uh they mm-hmm. changed their name to the boondock saints or i should say troy changed their name from the brood of to the course. boondock saints uh they put out an album it sold a grand total this blows my mind i don't even understand how it's possible for this to happen it's so yeah, how could they even quantify this number? Like, as sad as it is that Boondock Saints, the movie, came out in only five theaters and made 30 grand, 
Atlantic Records released this album wide mm. across the country, and it mm-hmm. sold a grand total of 690 copies. Ugh. Like, not 6,900. 600, less than 1,000 individual CDs were sold. Like, you just imagine, like, everything you can imagine they went through after watching this, and then that's what comes of it. Like, <sighs> they finally, and then it's like yeah. the sucker punch at the end where it just shows them, like, at their you know, day co- jobs. doing carpentry or, like, paint, you know, house painting. You're just like, oh. It just sucks so bad for those yeah, guys. I, I almost wish that just more of this documentary was showing them and what they went through. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you see, it, it feels very much just like point and shoot. To me, it felt like everything that's, you know, it was just like a one long home video that they just put on. They put up everything they had mm-hmm. with some like title cards throughout to explain some things. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it would be interesting to see like the angle of from the director's point of view and like the band members and then, you know, to see how like what they thought of Troy. Mm-hmm. Well, man. there's an amazing quote that I saw from Roger Ebert um, about this movie, about Overnight, because uh, he really liked it and said that it was like one of the best movies about filmmaking that he's ever seen. Um, and the quote from Roger Ebert, which is so true, is a. Uh, Duffy's family, we sensed during one scene, has been listening to this blowhard for a lifetime, (laughs) and although they are happy to share his success, they're sort of waiting to see how he screws up. So are Mm. we. And that Mm. is 100% true. Like, anytime he's, like, with his brother or with his dad or that scene where he's in the car with his mom, and he's just, like, trashing his brother and being like, he just wishes he was me. Ever since we were kids, he wishes that he was me. And the mom is just, like, trying to stop him from saying mean things about his own brother right. and right man it is true like they they probably were excited but at the same time like saw the writing on the wall and yeah. man right after the deal is made they're in like a hotel somewhere it's like the morning after some kind of celebration and like his father comes downstairs and he's like yeah just pull up a table or pull up a seat you know grab whatever you want to eat it's all on me or whatever um and then he literally says that like a ton of people have said to me, you know, like, uh, don't get carried away because, you know, this, these kind of things fall apart all the time. And he basically like puts down everybody who said that, like, well, they don't know, like, it's not mm-hmm. going to happen to me. And then it a hundred percent happens to him. Right. Like right. more spectacularly At- than like probably right. anybody else's career in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, that's probably like the fourth time in the movie where he says like, no one's ever done what we've done. Yeah. You know, I was just like, dude, you haven't actually done anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you've failed miserably at several things. Yeah. Be- and all because of your own mouth. Yeah. He's just, yeah. God, he's such a shitty person. Oh, I mean, of course he comes out and says like, you know, he was, he was shown in a bad light mm-hmm. in overnight and everything. But it's like, dude, I don't know. It really, I, how much I really be would be surprised if there would be a way to edit a 90 minute film out of the footage that these guys filmed and make him not seem like a complete fuck up. Yeah. Right. Like a psychopath lunatic. Yeah. But all that said, fascinating documentary. I mean, there's nothing else like it. Yeah. That's for sure. I mean, it's all, it's kind of like that early internet age where plenty of people wouldn't have had, had a friend as like, Joe, just follow me around and record everything for our eventual, Mm -hmm. you know, behind the scenes or whatever. 
Yeah. Like catching lightning in a bottle for sure. Mm-hmm. And again, all Duffy's fault because he's the one who asked him to do this. But then, yeah. God, they put in that scene where it's like a meeting of the band and everything. And the, the two directors of this, as I mentioned, oh. had been um, managing the band. Oh, and brutal. they're basically asking for money because Troy has gotten money for like the movie deal or something. And none of these guys have been paid and they're asking for money. And he's telling them literally like, you don't deserve anything. Yeah. You don't deserve any of this money. You de- yeah. What does he even say? Like, uh, like what have you even done yet to and, get any of this money? And he, like- he's just going through it and he's railing against them. As they're like sitting around a you know coffee table in some shitty apartment, and uh, he's just like, he starts off by saying you don't deserve any of this money, and then at some point when one of them challenges him on that, he's like, you know, that's wrong. You you do deserve this money, but you're not getting any of it. And it's just like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, and then he's just like, fuck you, and fuck you. Like knowing he's getting recorded, like it's, it does not seem to care because it's really like. He just thinks he's the best ever. Yeah. And he can talk to anyone however he feels, and nothing bad will come of it. I just wonder. He has to have seen this documentary by now. Um, Yes. I just wonder if, like, I doubt he would ever admit this to anybody else, but is there even a part of him that is aware that he's his own worst enemy or was during this point in his Mm. life at least? Well... I'd be very curious to know that too. I mean, of course, like even I, I, I have a hard time remembering that live thing I went to that he was there, but I feel like none of it was any like negative, like stuff about him or anything. It was just like all yeah. about the movie. I know now after watching this and doing some research that you can find him on Instagram. Oh, on and his account is Boondock Saints, of course. And it seems like he just sells a lot of merch. Mm. Still working on a, you know, a third entry into the series. Yeah. But it seems like he sells a lot of merch and just is very, like, posts quotes and questions, you know, to the fans about what, you, you know, certain things about the movie. And, you know, that's the route he's going. I mean, sure enough, 10 years later, he got a sequel made. Mm-hmm. So that's a hundred percent due to the popularity on home video though, because at that point 20th century Fox somehow was involved. And I read something about, I was looking at the sequels page and they said that uh, it was all because of the home video release and they weren't even like, you know, confident about the film because they still gave it like a slow rollout, which is probably Mm -hmm. smart because that's, you know, it's a sequel to a movie that a lot of people haven't seen or don't care about. So like just hit, the fans like Brian and I went out of our way to go see the sequel when it was in theaters, like drove to a theater that we like never go Mm. to. That was like a pretty far distance from either of us just to see it because, you know, we'd been waiting for so long. This is of course, before I knew all the behind the scenes stuff, but right. Right. I mean, yeah, I saw it. The one time I saw the sequel was in the theater and I hated it. Yeah. I was definitely disappointed by it. Um, Maybe two, three years ago, uh, I bought a copy of the Blu-ray for like $3 somewhere because I was like, I should mm-hmm. rewatch this thing. Still haven't, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's on my shelf. Some, someday. Yeah. I like Clifton Collins Jr. I mean, he's no Rocco, but. See, I hated that because I felt like they just were trying to recapture the magic of Rocco. Oh, they 100% were, but just and in I a just, void, yeah. I like Clifton Collins Jr. as an actor. Oh, yeah. yeah, same here. 
yeah, just as far as like a when you a behind the scenes story for me personally, a behind the scenes story being much more interesting than the actual movies he makes. <laughs> Quote know. unquote movies he makes. He's made uh, two movies, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, it says a lot. It's you know, it's one of those things like you got Hearts of Darkness where it's just a interesting all around story and like an, a fascinating movie where this is more of just you know the rise and fall of a jerk yeah you know i'll say this though like forget for a second if you can everything you know about troy duffy the person the documentary overnight and like you know your current feelings on boondock mm-hmm. saints and just imagine, you know, once upon a time, there was a time when you liked the movie enough that you had a poster hanging on your wall for it. Imagine if, like, he hadn't fucked everything up for himself so bad. What could his career have looked like? And oh, would you be interested to see if there was, like, an alternate reality where he kept his mouth shut? And, you know, what Boondock Saints came out in, like, 99, 2000. Like, a world where Troy Duffy has made, like, seven or eight films. Like, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that being said, like, what I said about it, it's still, it's nowhere near, like, the worst movie I've ever seen or anything like that. It's not, for for what it is for a guy, like, with no, no like, history or background in Hollywood to, like, make that script. It's, like, it's, like, a fascinating story of... Everything up until he blew it, mm-hmm. that's like an amazing story of like working at a bar and he like hand wrote, you know, in a composition notebook, like the script for this movie. And then he actually gets made and the whole thing like that's like that kind of rags to riches story is amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, if he was just like, you know, more of a humble person, because I mean, you couldn't even imagine what kind of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because even, you know, he was pretty. I'd say he's competent director, action and everything. Considering he had never directed sure. anything or even gone to film school. <laughs> yes, yeah, I would absolutely. 100% agree. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just, I wonder, like, the only other thing we've seen is Boondock Saints 2, which was him just, you know, a desperate attempt to make something else because nobody will give mm-hmm. him a shot, rightfully so, with any other ideas that he has. Um, but I really wonder, like... He's not a complete jerkwad. Miramax releases the film in theaters. A, does that affect the popularity? Would it still have to wait until DVD to become popular? And B, you know, if it was relatively successful and he gets a second movie greenlit, was this like a one-hit wonder? Like, it was just like kismet that he had like a fun story and like decent actors and everything and made a good movie? Is he one of these guys who would just be directing like direct to VOD bullshit right, for like right. Hulu or something at this point? Or yeah, so many variables. It's tough to say. I'm curious, like if the original script, how close it is to the shooting script, because I believe he ended up only with like half the money that he was going to get from Miramax. Mm-hmm. So like, how much of the movie was changed for that, or was it just? actors because i know what really did it in i believe was they were having trouble with like casting and locations that's like what held it up and that's what ultimately like started to piss harvey weinstein off i think and then he you know troy inserted foot into mouth too many times 
Yeah, well, they he wanted to film the whole thing in Boston because he's a Boston boy. Right. They ended up, so when, um, what were they called? Uh, Franchise Pictures, the studio that finally, like, funded it and released it for him. Uh, when When they funded it, he had less than half of what Miramax offered, so we're talking probably seven million or less to make the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, he like he originally wanted Stephen Dorff and Mark Wahlberg to play the leads. Um, and Mark Wahlberg, like you see him in the movie, is actually like verbally sucking his dick at like a backyard party at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, about how great the script is and everything. Um, Mark Wahlberg ended up passing on this movie to make Boogie Nights, which is maybe a smart choice. Good call. <laughs> sure. Um, other people considered were Brendan Fraser, Nikki Cat, Ewan McGregor. At no point in any of these conversations did uh, Sean Patrick Flannery or Norman Reedus come up. So right. it does, and you know, also, you know, uh, Norman Reedus is Daryl from The Walking Dead now, but he mm-hmm. was probably kind of a nobody at the time. Same with yeah, I think, and I think they're both good in, in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I like. So them both. I mean, how how vastly different would it be with different actors? I mean, certainly. But like Sean Patrick Flannery at the time was what Powder. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then for we already said that he wanted Kenneth Branagh to play the Willem Dafoe part. I think Willem Dafoe was probably way better in the role than Kenneth Branagh would have been. Mm. But uh, other considerations were Patrick Swayze, Sylvester Stallone, Bill Murray, Mike Myers, Kevin Spacey, and Robert De Niro, which is really just like throwing anything at the wall. Right. It's just like throwing every name up. And like, is Robert De Niro ever actually a possibility, or is that just a name someone threw out there? Yeah. Feels feels like more the latter. Yeah. Imagine Mike Myers playing the Willem Dafoe part. (laughs) No. Yeah, just... Or Bill Murray. I mean, it's one of those things you can't picture anyone else but Willem Dafoe now, but... yeah. Yeah, just uh, it's it's a crazy story. That's for damn sure. Mm-hmm. But man, what a jerk! <laughs> yeah, what an asshole. <laughs> um, should we talk about some movie posters? Oh yes, please. Uh, Hearts of Darkness. You got a yellow and red theme with some helicopters. Mm-hmm. And then you got like a kind of a tiny Francis Ford Coppola in the middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, bunch of quotes at the top. I mean, yeah, it's it's actually like overpowered by quotes. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know. Um I mean, I guess it fits. I'm trying, you know. This is a it, tough one because it's like, you know, you're not advertising Apocalypse Now. You're advertising a documentary about Apocalypse right. Now. Yeah. Um well, I mean, for me it makes, you know, this poster makes sense cuz it's right there's the most fascinating part of it, which is the Philippine army helicopters. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's got that. I almost feel like it should have just been like a candid shot of Francis Ford Coppola standing with a worried look on his face in the jungle with his shirt off. Yeah. Like something that, actually, yes, I agree. Like, or, or just like a, a shot of that beach with all the sets destroyed, <laughs> yeah. you know, so something like or that. even Francis Ford Coppola on the ground watching the helicopters fly away. <laughs> right. Would have been pretty good. Yeah. Just like a quote, like, where are they going? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's nothing super interesting about this, like just as an image, like the, the red and yellow with helicopters is fine, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's, it's fine, but it's nothing great. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, full tilt boogie. This is something I just learned tonight. Before the show, you told me about the Frank Frazetta poster for from Dust Till Dawn. Mm-hmm. That was never released as a, the real one sheet. Yeah, that just um, that fucking kills me that they just went yeah. with like close up shots of George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino holding yeah. pistols when they had a goddamn amazing painted Frank Frazetta poster. Right. I feel like the full tail bogey poster is like was someone like tried like looked at the Frazetta one and then like kind of photoshopped some stuff. <laughs> yeah. To m- make uh this one it's kind of weird. I mean, it's got like the you know, the castle in the background and then there's the the uh camera lens behind that and I don't just at a glance know. though, like just looking at this real quick and without like studying it too hard, I feel like you don't even notice the camera lens. You just see like an orange circle behind them. Um all the like behind the scenes images in the background are so dark so as not to yeah. take focus off of the the main imagery that mm-hmm. you don't even really process what that is unless you sit and look at it. So it almost just looks to me at a glance like a shitty like 2001 era DVD box cover for a cheap like $5 Walmart release of full tilt of uh yeah. of um from dusk till dawn. Yeah, no, 100%. Um I mean the parts that would tell you that this is a documentary about that are so hidden like you said that mm-hmm. they they might as well not be there. Yeah, otherwise it just looks like I mean the two Clooney and Tarantino are almost in silhouette and they're tiny. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know if that's Selma Hayek that's like up above them, but it just looks like fucking Jean Grey going like full Phoenix force or something with that effect that they did around her. Right. Yeah. It's, it's pretty rough. And so, I mean, even the text America's most wanted bear it all full Mm -hmm. tilt boogie unzipped, unwrapped, unleashed. It says nothing on here about it being a movie about about the making of from dusk till dawn. Mm-hmm. Like at least Hearts of Darkness has that. Yeah, Hearts of Darkness. You know? They beat you over the head with like at the very top in big red lettering on white. It says the magic and the madness of making Apocalypse Now. Right. And yeah, there's a picture of uh, Francis Ford Coppola right in the middle. Hmm. Um. Yeah. I mean, with that overnight, I'd say it's the best one. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it also feels like. Not a whole lot of thought went into this one. It's just like the first idea that would potentially yeah. come to mind. But I mean, it's got that kind of almost it's like a pop art sensibility. Yeah, it's it's like uh, photocopied like, cutouts that almost looks yeah, like an old like, like street punk rock art poster kinda, or yeah. something. Yeah, of Troy Duffy and a hand which is probably not his holding a no. camera and pointing right. it at his head like a gun, shooting himself in the head. Mm-hmm. I mean, it works. I mean, and it is overnight is not a documentary about boondock saints. It's about him. Right. So it doesn't really need the, uh, boondocks reference. I like this tagline too, actually, that I didn't notice before. There's more than one way to shoot yourself. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, he shoots himself in the foot a thousand times over the course of the movie, but also he was the one who told those guys to film him. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, absolutely. He's got a couple quotes in that little starburst, which feels kind of out of place, Mm -hmm. but, yeah, yeah, I'd Other agree that. that the overnight one is probably the best, most direct and obvious. Mm-hmm. 
Hearts of Darkness yep. is unoffensive, but not super inspired. Yep. And then the Full Tilt Boogie one is just, I still look at it and think, this is a movie, like, this is a cover of a DVD that I would dig through and see in the $5 bin at Walmart and not even give mm-hmm. it a second glance because it's right. uninteresting. Like, when I think back to, like, being in college, like, taking graphic design, like, they'd always say, like, you know, a good design, if you could, like, print it out small and put it up on the wall, like, that's, like, one step of making a good design. Mm-hmm. And at least overnight would have that where you, it would stand out versus the other two just look like yeah dark, a dark mess. Mm-hmm. So. I'll give it to overnight on this one, Mills. Yeah, same here. Well, I think now we really need to get in the nitty gritty. Time to buy, borrow, and burn some things. Millsy, I want to hear what you got for me. All right. Um, You know, as a film, I think that Hearts of Darkness is probably the best one. Best, like most well-made and kind of professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, overnight, I just think that the story is fucking fascinating. And Full Tilt Boogie, I just like the style and the fun of it. So this is actually pretty tough. Yes, I concur. Gosh. I think... Do you need time to think? No, no, no. I'm, I'm okay. going to go out on a limb here. Right. And I'm going to say that I am going to buy... As I still consider, <laughs> I'm going to buy overnight just because it's the full fucking package and it makes me uncomfortable when I watch it. So you know that it's doing its thing. <laughs> I'm going to buy overnight. I'm going to borrow the fun factor of Full Tilt Boogie. And I'm going to burn what is probably the best documentary of the three, Hearts of Darkness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mills. Oh, Mills. You're my favorite. (laughs) Can you tell I hadn't really decided at all what I was going to pick before we got to this very moment? Uh, I mean, I might have just beat you to my decision by like maybe 10 minutes. But um, I am going to... Burn overnight. <laughs> borrow full tilt boogie and buy hearts of darkness. Fantastic. I I after I mean I've seen overnight like twice at this point. I mean of the three, I mean I feel like I would just want to rewatch Hearts of Darkness at some time. Mm-hmm. I really liked Full Tilt Boogie. And it's like my kind of thing yeah. that I'm always talking about. But as far as that one, it's something I want to see, but it's not the most compelling that I'd want to like rewatch it, mm-hmm. I think. And overnight, it's just, he's such an asshole. <laughs> and it's just, I don't, it's, I, uh, of the things I want, I want in my life, I just don't want to see like a trash bag dude being shitty to his friends friends and family well thanks to this podcast i own a copy of this now so maybe this is just me justifying my purchase (laughs) but i just man what a it's like a truth is stranger than fiction kind of scenario yeah like how this guy who's such an asshole managed to get the opportunities he did Mm -hmm. it's just like what kind of cosmic joke 
yeah. is someone playing yes. on mankind, that that guy gets the biggest opportunity in the world. I mean, I think all three of these are worth watching. Oh, 100%. But even even for me to say it is ludicrous, but being like, the movie that I just said I will launch into the sun, I think you should definitely watch, listener. You know? <laughs> well, that's that's why, you know, I think in the beginning we decided to do buy, borrow, and burn instead of just like star ratings because otherwise right. we I could just give all three of these like four stars and that's, <laughs> right. that's fucking boring. Like it's right. all about the hard choice. Right. I mean the, the, the like you said, the, the, the truth and the fiction, like the overnight is like so crazy of a story, but it's also like, you know, like I said, it feels like very like point and shoot home video documentary. Yeah, it's not professional like, in the least, right? Not at all. But you know what? What brings people in is what actually happens. <laughs> so I see that. I don't. I don't knock you on that at all. Think about this: overnight in the year two thousand or ninety nine or whatever when they were filming it, like they probably had mini DV cameras or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's that scene when they're actually on like set in Toronto or wherever filming Boondock Saints and Billy Connolly, I think who had seen like the documentary filmmakers like earlier in the project sees them walking up to the set and is like, Oh, you guys have hit the big time now or whatever. Or like now that we're finally making the movie, you got some good cameras and you assume (laughs) that they got like nicer DV cameras Mm -hmm. or whatever. But then hearts of darkness, you know, again, filmed in the era of film even the uh, the behind the scenes stuff that Coppola's wife was filming had to have been some kind of like reel to reel camera, right? It had to have been. And just think well, about they didn't that. Have anything else like, back then? Yeah. Big film production. You know, there's a ton of people working for them out in the jungle in the Philippines. Like, sure, it's still annoying to shoot with a giant camera with film, but like his wife mm-hmm. filming all the behind the scenes stuff had some kind of big annoying ass camera to carry around too. And then there's that great moment right at the end of the documentary where uh, Francis Ford Coppola is talking about um, the future of film. Yeah. I forgot to mention that. It's awesome. Yeah. He says, uh, you know, not super tactfully, but he basically says like, you know, the way these cameras are getting smaller with like eight millimeter film. I can't wait for the day that some, you know, what does he say? Like some fat he girl? He says something horrible, like some, some little fat girl from Arkansas or something. Yeah, gets her dad's camera and makes a movie and with it becomes and becomes Mozart, I Mozart think Mozart and like changes yeah. the game. And I'm sitting there thinking, fucking, like, you can go to the theater nowadays and watch like a feature film directed by the guy who made Ocean's Eleven that he mm-hmm. filmed on an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> like. So I watch, I said the same thing, watching that. As soon as he said, I was like, I was like, damn, that was like harsh for no reason, Coppola. But then I was like, well, it's a pretty cool like foreshadowing from 1991 about like yeah. where we're getting to. Interesting sentiment, but why he had to specify that it was a fat girl, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Wait, really? <laughs> it just with the whole thing, I was like, man, this guy is a lunatic. He just thought, you know, what you what's said in the Philippines stays in the Philippines. Yeah, I guess. Apparently, Jesus. Oh, oh, god. Yeah, I'd say all three of these worth watching. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Honestly, in a manner of speaking, one of the most solid groupings of movies I think we've had. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Like, all good, all good for mm-hmm. somewhat different reasons. It's just crazy oh, yes. that we had three movies that were all about 
like documentaries about making movies that were all handled in such different ways. <laughs> oh, yes. They couldn't be any more different. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Uh, good stuff. Well, Mills. Yeah. Is it potentially your favorite time of uh, the episode? I love it. Let's find out what we're watching next. This episode's already boring and old. Like, let's let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> What's our uh, episode count at? I don't think we've added anything since last time, which should put us at just shy of 200. 193 potential trios to pick from. All right. 193. Random generate. And I still think 107 or something like that is the highest number we've ever mm. hit. So. Oh. Well, we still haven't gotten higher than that. <laughs> Jeez. 97. 97. Next episode is going to be Highway to Hell. Party time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a movie on this one that I never thought I'd rewatch. So thank you, Triple Threat <laughs> Theater. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm very ready. Oh, this will this will be good though. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I'm pumped. Mills, we've done it again. Sixteenth mm-hmm. time running. Mm-hmm. People. Let us know what you're thinking. Yes, please. Give us the feedbacks. By all means. We appreciate it. But with that, until next time, it's Triple Threat Theater. I'm Joe Daxberger. And I'm Ryan Miller. Thanks for watching. one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy.